Hey, Jay, I was thinking. What's up, Miles? I miss Lee Forrester. She was so cool. Ah, oh, I know, right? Man, I really wish she were still around. Did she ever come back? After she and Magneto broke up. Oh, yeah, a couple times. A few years back, she and Scott even finally got a brief reunion after the Fantastic Four and a handful of X-Men answered a distressed beacon she'd left in the Bermuda Triangle. What was she doing in the Bermuda Triangle? Fighting imperialist aliens and evil industrialists in an alternate dimension. Oh, as one does. Did they get her out? Nah, she and Skull the Slayer ended up deciding to stick around when the heroes headed back to Earth proper. Fair enough. That's a hell of a gap, though, considering how tight she used to be with the X-Men. Well, she had run into the X-Men a few times before that. One time the Arcadia got caught in a hurricane and a few X-Men picked up Lee's SOS. Oh, and once before that, uh, Senyaka came after her because of her previous association with Magneto. Senyaka? Former acolyte, chip on his shoulder, lots of scarves. Oh, right, he had a great action figure. Anyway, I, I take it Lee got out okay? Well, she escaped Senyaka, but she immediately got caught up in some business with despair. Again? Yeah, but she was able to build on her past experience and foil him by making out with a suave, silver-haired X-Man. Wait, she and Magneto got back together? Lord, no. Then who? Cable. What?! <laughs> I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 187 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. 187? Like, I know we say the episode number at the start of every episode, but that's a lot. How did this happen? That is a whole, whole lot. I mean, I think we know how this happened, which is that... In, you know, 1963, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby co-created a team of teenagers fighting to protect a world that hated and feared them, and it just got more complex from there, and finally we were forced to step in. I, I like the idea of you saying, well, we know how it started, and then it's just us doing the entire podcast over again, and then going to episode 187. I can't tell if you meant that for it to be an on-air joke, or like, oh, we should go back and do that. Oh, I meant it to be on air, but let's not go back and do that. It would have been, fun been funny, actually, to, to just drop in the beginning of episode one, the... I remember how it started, and just have the very beginning of the first cold open. <laughs> um, I, I think that that would be too much work and would be weird. So, the cold open we did, I'd like to point out, for any listeners who don't remember, that Lee Forrester making out with Cable is doubly surprising, in that Cable is the son of the dude she used to make out with. Now, I don't think there's anything inherently unethical about that, but it's just weird. Okay, in Lee's defense, she had no idea who Cable was at the time beyond one of the X-Men. She didn't even find out that he and Cyclops were related at all until much, much later in, in an issue of X-Men and then only found out that they were family. And they didn't get back to, like, they just, they just kissed the once and, and were good adventure bros other than that. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's fair. I feel like, you know, makeouts on the job is, is a reasonable thing when you're an adventurer. So, however, that Cable arc did go real deep into the other half of Cable's parentage because after the despair thing, they end up in limbo with Belasco and they have to fight Sim, which leads to one of my absolute favorite cop-out explanations of all time after, after Cable takes Sim down. Oh yeah, you texted that to me earlier. Uh, what was that again? For reasons too complicated to go into, you offered precisely the right touch necessary to defeat him. I have to almost respect that level of writerly laziness. I mean, that's just cocky. That's great. I feel like this is, this is what you do when you know you have to wrap up the storyline, but you don't actually want to put in the work and thought necessary to resolve it for real. That seems reasonable, yeah. Well, anyway... Previously on Jay and Miles Explained the X-Men... We had a question, which asked about a story involving Jean Grey's sister and Atuma, you know, that uh, blue guy who's a real jerk from Atlantis Attacks. Well, the question was about Jean Grey's sister, and the answer involved a story about, um, in involving Atuma from Atlantis Attacks. But that reminded us, we've never gotten around to covering Bizarre Adventures number 27. Now, to somebody who's never heard of Bizarre Adventures number 27, this may seem strange. It's a random issue a couple dozen into a run you've probably never heard of. And that's absolutely true. So let's talk a little bit about what Bizarre Adventures was. Well, when you have an adventure... There are standard adventures, and then there are adventures that are slightly out of the ordinary. And then, and then, 
there are bizarre adventures. <laughs> and what those bizarre adventures are sometimes is a black and white magazine that Marvel published in the 1970s and 1980s. It was actually originally called Marvel Preview for the first 24 issues, and then 25 through 34, which was the last one, were renamed to Bizarre Adventures. And these stories were all the hell over the place. We're going to be talking about the, the single issue that totally focused on X-Men this time, but we also had stories starring a decidedly non-Chris Pratt Star-Lord. Oh, back when he was still all serious? Uh, yeah, and had a very different costume, uh, along with occasional other Marvel heroes or original pulp sci-fi fantasy stories, or I think like Sherlock Holmes was in some of these. My favorite bizarre adventure of bizarre adventures it has more to do with the magazine than its contents. Number 11 had to be pulled and reprinted because of a blurb on the cover, um, which, which described it as a novel-length science fiction spectacular in the tradition of Robert A. Heinlein, and Heinlein apparently threatened to sue. <laughs> yup. So, do you need to read other issues of bizarre adventures? I mean, even if you could find them... Not really. I think this is the only one that's all that X-Men relevant, and please, listeners, correct us if we're wrong. But this one right here actually has some kind of important stories in it, which makes it weird that it's in such an obscure, like, backwater book. This is definitely the only one that offers us a window into, I will quote from the cover, the secret lives of the X-Men. I mean, I guess they're kind of secret in that these stories haven't been told before, but okay, I'll, I'll accept it. I, I would question, though, the difference between secret and untold. Like, these seem like stories that weren't told just because people didn't really think to, not because they were secret. And I wonder at the same time what a group as, as generally dysfunctional as the X-Men and also, you know, who have secret identities and layers of intrigue in their regular work lives would have as secret lives. Like, I wonder if they're all just, like, really, really sitcom stable. I don't know. I mean, I remember that zine um, you wrote that we uh, will have just sold at Emerald City Comic Con, which I guess will have already happened by the time we record. Yay! Jay's book of, of irrelevant headcanon. Exactly. So maybe it's stuff like that. Uh, to be fair, some of those things were, were or most of those things were not low-key and domestic. For example, I didn't mention why Namor is no longer welcome in Bed Bath & Beyond the Vancouver Aquarium the state of Utah, but trust me, epic. I do trust you. One, because I trust you in general, and two, because fucking Namor, right? Uh, you tell me. Well, anyway, so these stories, despite having been uh, in this relatively obscure source, they've been reprinted somewhat. Now, the whole thing's reprinted in X-Men Omnibus number two, which is a giant, expensive hardcover, which is pretty sweet. We did splurge on it back in the day, but most people aren't going to be able to afford or, you know, for something that's reprinted elsewhere. Yeah, I think those are out of print now, but I will say if you can get your hands on one and if you have the disposable income to do this or if it's professionally relevant for you, I love the Omnibus collections. They're really sturdy. They're reprinted really nicely on high gloss paper, and they do something that almost no collected editions do, which is reprint back matter and letter columns. That in and of itself is worth the cover price to me. Well, as far as individual reprints, the Jean Grey story we're going to be covering, or more accurately, the Phoenix story we're going to be covering, was actually included in some prints of the Dark Phoenix saga, which is interesting. And Marvel actually just released it as one of their $1 True Believers one-shots as True Believers Phoenix Bizarre Adventures. The Iceman story was reprinted in a trade called X-Men Rarities, also in a trade that included the old Iceman versus Oblivion miniseries. Remember that one? Which I continue to unabashedly love in all of its deeply bizarre, baffling, and somewhat terrible glory. <laughs> Me too. And the Iceman story was reprinted at the end of Uncanny X-Men number 600, the last issue of Uncanny X-Men and the end of Brian Bendis' run. That was interesting to me. I mean, Bendis did a lot with Iceman, but as for why the story was included, well, we'll talk a little bit more about our opinions on that once we get to the story this episode. First, though, I think we're going to start with the Phoenix story. That is Brides of a Tuma, written by Chris Claremont, penciled by John Bashima, and inked by Klaus Jensen. We're, we're talking about inkers in particular on this, because as Miles mentioned, this is, this is a black and white comic. And instead of being a black and white reprint of a color comic, as like like you see a lot, this is this is a comic that was drawn to be black and white, and so the ink work and the line work is really really lovely and lush on these. And in all three stories, I super dig that. I know there are some filmmakers that actually prefer black and white. Like uh, Richard Darabont um, wanted the mist to be black and white, and in fact, when it came out on uh, home release later, there's a black and white edition with it. It just suits some things. There's a certain level of of texture and starkness to it that's awesome. Yeah, and there are there are some artists and line artists who I feel pretty strongly 
lose out when their work is colored under the vast, vast majority of circumstances. Um, I mean, there are like Bill Sienkiewicz is one of them. Like, I love the things that a lot of colorists do with his art. And there's a lot of really well-colored Bill Sienkiewicz art out there, but nothing in my head compares to the line art. Yeah, I, I would agree. Well, I mean, I, maybe I would agree. I don't know. I like his colored stuff and I like his black and white stuff. I just like Bill Sienkiewicz's work. Yeah, no. And I, I think there are absolutely stories where it makes way more sense for it to be in color and it's totally appropriate and it's generally done absolutely exquisitely when it is. I just really love the line art. So Brides of Atuma, which has beautiful line art, is... Oh, God. Remember remember Atlantis Attacks, the 1989 cro- summer crossover? I think of Atlantis Attacks every day and every night, and I weep. I weep saltwater tears with little tiny blue people swimming in them. Okay, so you might want to see a therapist about that or possibly some other sort of doctor. But Atlantis Attacks, for those of you who have forgotten or who, like Miles, do not live in its eternal watery present, was the 1989 summer crossover event. The big villain was a guy named Atuma, And as it turned out, it was basically a sequel to this short story. Right. This story, and Bizarre Adventures uh, number 27 in general, came out in 1981. Now, that's important because this is a story about Phoenix, and this came out after Phoenix had died on the moon, after the Dark Phoenix saga. From what I understand, it was actually originally supposed to appear in Marvel Spotlight, before the Dark Phoenix saga happened, back when Phoenix was still alive. It didn't, and so instead we have a framing story. The framing story is is Sarah talking to Jean's, Jean's grave, or Phoenix's grave, what, what Sarah thinks is Jean's grave. And Sarah is, is worried that her children may be mutants, as they will in fact turn out to be, and that their powers will destroy them as Jean's apparently destroyed her. Spoiler, they will turn out to be mutants. Their powers won't destroy them, but Nanny will come pretty close. Yeah, and then I think maybe the phalanx kill them. Um, Sarah Gray, by the way, is, of course, uh, Jean Gray's sister, who we see here and there. I believe this is the most prominent Sarah Gray story that's out there. I think so, yeah. Um, Claremont was planning to do more with her and, and, and always had, but she ended up falling, falling much further into the background, especially once Jean came back. Now, um, she also has trouble keeping track of the, the names of her children, which shifts somewhat over time. I mean, I think gray kids are kind of like Guthrie kids. They're mentioned irregularly enough, and there are enough, especially with all the alternate universes, versions of them, that the writers can get a little confused. I'm not going to worry too much about it. Maybe they all have a bunch of nicknames, like characters in Russian novels. Oh, that could be it, yeah. Now... Grave aside, let's flash back to happier times, like the time that Jean and Sarah got kidnapped by people. Huzzah! So Jean's parents at this point were still pretty shaken up by the whole Phoenix thing. This, this, the flashback takes place shortly after Jean became Phoenix and, and revealed herself as such to her immediate family. And Jean and Sarah are taking a much-needed break, um, going sailing on Shelter Island. They're going to be meeting up with their fellas for dinner. A creepy dude hits on them on the pier, and Jean telekinetically pushes him into the water. Then they take off in their rented boat. And the first time I read this, um, I, I kind of, I somehow missed the detail that it was their rented boat and thought that they had pushed the guy off the pier and then stolen his yacht. Oh, that would have been a much better start to this story. What? But I, I really... I really love this scene, though, because um, one of the things Jean is thinking about, and, you know, it's technically Phoenix. Yes, it's not Jean. We're just going to call her Jean sometimes because at this point in continuity, they were one and the same. This was before the retcon of Phoenix having actually replaced Jean Grey. Anyway, point being, one of Jean's complaints about this douche bro being a douche bro is how unimaginative his, like, non-consenty, creepy fantasies are. Like, I feel like if you're a telepath, you're probably going to be getting this sort of thing from people all the time, whether you want to or not. There's a lot of talk about if people's thoughts are loud, you can't really block them out. And so I can understand just being bothered by people being prosaic in their dark fantasies. Like, you want to hear something interesting. Like, maybe it would be disturbing, but at least it would be different. I have so much sympathy for Jean in this moment. I talked about this in a recent episode when we were talking about the the screwed up um, War and Pieces story arc in X-Factor and Hulk. But I get doubly offended when a story is not only screwed up and offensive, but when it is those things in a cliched way. It's poor storytelling. Like I remember I wrote I wrote an article for Comics Alliance years ago 
that was basically, I am so tired of writing the same article over and over and over again about your offensive, but also really trite use of rape as a narrative tool. It's like, come on, you know, if, if you're going to fail, at least fail in a new way. And I think that's kind of what Gene is saying here. But, you know, talking about how great it would have been if they just stole these uh, these assholes' boat, it would have been, I agree. But I do think that Claremont really gets across some of Gene's qualities that don't always come through when she's more playing second fiddle to the the louder, more central characters, like, say, Cyclops or Wolverine. She's got this playful and, and fiery nature that comes out really well, especially when she's hanging out with her more straight-laced sister. Like, Gene just seems like somebody who's fun and exciting and interesting. She's also teetered for years and with and without the Phoenix Force um, into a sort of cheerful amorality when it comes to the use of her powers. Yeah, and that really comes through here. And like this, I mean, the Dark Phoenix Saga, don't get me wrong, is one of the best comic stories, one of the best pieces of fiction like ever, I think. But I kind of wish we'd gotten to see this version of Jean, this uninhibited and yet troubled version of Jean more. She is fascinating. Tom Taylor, um, you should write her like that. Uh, because you know us and you like us, right? So listen to us, please. I think you're kind of pushing it there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, Tom, we love you no matter what you do. Anyway. Anyway, um, now, Sarah is nonplussed by Jean's telekinesis and, and how cavalierly she uses her, her powers. And also, at this point, is already freaking out, as she will be later, the idea that her kids might be mutants, which Jean understandably finds kind of offensive. What they're not yet disturbed by, because they don't know what's happening, is that they are being tailed by an unearthly submarine whose origin, we are told, is as unknown as its purpose. I super enjoy purple prose surrounding pulpy nonsense. Claremont is so good at that. Oh, dude, this is so stunningly purple because they they immediately hit an enormous fog and it turns out it's not a fog, it's knockout gas. And Jean passes out and slips over the side of the ship and according to the narration, uh, she does so with a gentle, casual grace. That's how you know you're smooth, when even when you've been knocked unconscious by Batman the Animated Series' favorite weapon, you're still, like, all sensual and confident about the whole thing. Well done, Jean. I mean, if you're gonna die, die with your boots on. That's what I say. Also Iron Maiden. But if your boots are on, then will you be able to, to, to slip as gracefully over the railing? I feel like you'd want more ankle flexibility for, like, full, full effect there. Maybe there's the, there are those sweet shoes from Black Panther from the movie. Then you could totally be graceful. Okay, the, the sneakers? Yeah. Okay, speaking of, this is totally unrelated to X-Men, except that it's also the Marvel Universe. So we've mentioned before, we record early, so we actually, like, both just saw Black Panther because it just came out as we record this episode. It's so good. It was so good. The best Marvel movie by a wide margin. It's amazing. It's brilliant. It's so good. It is so, so, so so, oh, so good and important and phenomenal. And if you haven't seen it yet, you should go see it. And if you're planning on waiting till it's out on, on you know, video or whatever, um, and you have the resources to get to a, a screening in a theater on the big screen, do it because this is a movie whose, whose visuals will benefit from that tremendously. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. It's so good. It's so wonderful. I'm so happy about it. Like I saw it, I saw it opening night. I saw it um, on Thursday. We're recording the following Monday. And I feel like, feel like I'm still kind of surfing on that high. Yeah, me too. I, I'm not going to lie. I cried multiple times. And to be fair, that's not a super hard thing, but this movie totally earned it. Also, it had great costume design. Also, it had great a lot of other things. Also, the actress who plays Shuri has the best facial expressions. She totally does. Anyway, back to X-Men. So Jean, having gracefully slipped uh, out of consciousness and out of her boat, takes advantage of this to have a flashback within Sarah's flashback to how she got her powers. Now, this part right here is actually a big part of why we thought it was important to cover Bizarre Adventures number 27, because in this obscure story, one of the most important aspects of Jean Grey's background comes into play. Right. This is the first appearance of Annie Richardson, isn't it? It totally is, and I think it's actually the only actual appearance. I mean, she's been referenced and occasionally flashbacked. Well, I guess this is a flashback, but still, this is the most focal one, I think. Yeah, so this is, for, for those of you unfamiliar with the, the advent of Jean Grey's powers, Jean's telepathy clicked on when her best friend Annie was struck by a car and killed as they were playing outside, and Jean felt Annie die. This basically led into several years of 
varyingly severe depression. Sometimes she's catatonic and institutionalized in these in, in flashbacks or references to it. Sometimes she's just basically in in a deep funk that lasts for several years, which she manages to get out of with the aid of Charles Xavier, who locks down her telepathy for a while. Right. And so that's why in the beginning of the Silver Age, Jean is purely a telekinetic because Xavier has locked her telepathy away essentially until she's more ready to handle it. This is something the X-Men movies uh, referenced pretty heavily. Or at least until he decides to fake his own death and they need a telepath around. So he just sort of jumpstarts it back up again, which is what actually happens in the Silver Age. Right. And it's implied there that uh, Xavier, like, gave some of his telepathy to her, which back in the Silver Age, like, sure, whatever, whatever explanations you have, fine, it's a Silver Age. Ooh, did he do it with magnetism? I mean, magnetism was probably somehow related. But anyway, so very important continuity being introduced right here in this story, both in terms of Annie Richardson and something that, in my opinion, makes early Jean Grey a much more interesting character in terms of Jean's relationship with her powers as they pertain to Professor Xavier's mentorship and training. Now, post-flashback, Jean comes to. She has been dressed in a, a fancy, fancy bikini and a lot of bangles, and she is breathing underwater. So that's a thing. And yeah, so she figures she she figures out she has somehow been turned into an Atlantean and decides immediately that it, it can't have been Namor, who's the only Atlantean she knows. Um, I assume that she reaches this conclusion because neither she nor Sarah is blonde. Namor does have a type. It's true. He's, if he's going to be a scoundrel, then he's going to be a scoundrel in one specific hair color direction. That's one of the reasons that I'm not too worried about him spending a lot of time uh, on the new X-Men Red team. I don't think there are any blonde women on there, so he'll probably behave himself, at least in that regard. And um, Jean finds Sarah and, and discovers that, that Sarah has also been turned into an Atlantean. Um, and... Jean mentions in the story that she can tell Sarah has been transformed because, quote, she's colored as I am. I assume this means they're supposed to be blue or we're supposed to conclude that they're blue, but there's no indication of that in the stories in black and white, so it's just sort of baffling. I mean, the fact that Sarah is underwater and breathing should be indicator enough, I would think. Well, still, I mean, Jean's not wrong. Sarah is colored as Jean is, in grayscale. The reason they're there, as it turns out, is that they have been kidnapped by a tuma. Natuma's plan is to kidnap mutant women, transform them into water breathers using a genetic virus, and breed a race of super beings that will bring the undersea and surface world to their collective knees. Okay, two things. One, Atuma, like we mentioned, is a villain of Atlantis attacks. Now, I don't know a ton about him, except that he's like the big evil Atlantean. He's got a really cool looking helmet with big sort of Baldur the Brave style plate spike horns on it. And he's always an immense asshole and a total misogynist. And that really comes through here. I hate Atuma a ton. He is a total jerk, which I guess makes him a good villain, but I hate it. I hate him a lot. He's horrible, and he's he's really, like, hardcore horrible even for a villain. Like, this dude maybe belongs a little more in Game of Thrones than X-Men. And there's a little bit more on that later. But thing two, so he's going to have babies with a lot of people in order to beat his nemesis. That kind of reminds me of Azazel with this complicated plan to have sex with ladies to produce blue teleporting children to get him out of hell. Like, I get playing the long game. I respect it. Apocalypse does that. Sinister does that. But they're, like, semi-immortal. Atuma's not. Do Atlanteans live thousands of years? I'm pretty sure they don't. So maybe he'll bring the surface world to its knees, but he'll be, like, 90 by then. I mean, depending on how long these babies take to reach ass-kicking maturity so they can punch Namor a lot. I don't know. I gotta respect it, though, because, like I mentioned, Atuma's very hateable. That makes him a good villain. Another thing that makes him a good villain is having unnecessarily complicated plans. Well, look, we know that Namor was an adult in the 1940s, and we know that he hasn't visibly aged since then. I just always figured that was Marvel time. No, I think that's Namor time. Okay. Stop. Namor time. Imperious Rex! Anyway, Atuma's talking about his weird plan and how this involves, you know, having babies with Jean and Sarah Gray, which obviously they are not very into at all. And when Jean resists, he talks about how, okay, this is creepy. Warning. He's going to kill Jean and cut off her head and mount it on a pole in his bedroom so that severed deceased head can watch him rape Sarah Gray? Like, goddamn, 
I hate him so much, Jay. I hate Atuma. I wish bad things upon him. Being in a terrible crossover years later is too good for him. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely, I, I, I stand by my Game of Thrones analogy, and in fact, probably specifically the TV show, because it's it's a bit more fucked up in that direction than the books, which are pretty fucked up in that direction. So, you know, yeah. Um, spoiler, none of this happens, because um, while Atuma's power dampeners would be enough to stop Marvel Girl, Phoenix cares not a lick, and she and Sarah bust out. Uh, Jean brings the Citadel tumbling down, and she uses the Phoenix power to return both Jean and Sarah to their air-breathing status quo. Which is a pretty big deal. I mean, she has to, like, genetically, molecularly rewrite Sarah, which she's the Phoenix, so she does. I mean, she's reversing the effects of a virus that was created to do the same, and I would think that that would be simpler than doing it entirely from scratch, especially with her own already fixed genetics to work as a template from since they, they've got to have a certain degree of commonality. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I'm just saying it's not quite a big deal on the scale that it is being made to be, made out to be a big deal compared to other big deals. I suppose that's true. But Chris Claremont does make the captions make it sound very impressive indeed. Now, Jean is also thinking about the murder urges that she's been having in this encounter because while she did just slowly, gently bring down the palace upon the Atlantean guards of Atuma, because, you know, water makes things fall slow. She really did want to just kill them. And as she thinks to herself uh, about this, she, in my opinion, defines a lot of what makes the phoenix interesting as a character. The phoenix is a creature of life, of emotion, of passion. But passion is inherently violent and impulsive. It's action without thought. It taps into my emotions, good and bad, and amplifies them. At the same time, it gives me the power to fulfill those feelings. So long as my intellect restrains my emotions, I'll be all right. But if I ever lose control... Feelings ruin everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could argue, incorrectly and oversimplifyingly, that that's the whole point of the Dark Phoenix Saga. But as a flashback that leads to the Dark Phoenix Saga, I really like that this aspect of the Phoenix Force and this aspect of Jean are examined, because those are the themes the Dark Phoenix Saga really grapples with. So... I wish that this story had come out before the Dark Phoenix Saga did. I think it would have been a nice lead-in. Not that the Dark Phoenix Saga really needed that, but hey, there's nothing wrong with making a good thing even better, right? That would have been pretty cool. Um, now, the other choice Jean made, the other thing that I kind of want to talk about here because it's really interesting and it's a really interesting thing to look at ethically, is that Jean decided unilaterally to block Sarah's memories of the entire thing. The only reason Sarah rem remembers it now is that that block disappeared when Jean died. Oh, man, what is this, the end of Doctor Who Series 4? Oh, harsh. But yeah, Sarah is freaking out a lot. I mean, she was already worrying about her kids, and having seen what the Phoenix Force could do, she's freaking out hard, like in a very out-of-control way. And so, Jean makes a call. Now, I personally think that Sarah is made of sterner stuff, and if Jean had just taken some more time to talk to her, she would have been okay. But hey, I wasn't there. Well, Sarah agrees. Sarah is really frustrated with the fact that Jean did this without her consent and without any conversation. And in fact, Sarah was pretty calm by the end of the thing. Like, Jean just sort of decided, nope. And she and Sarah still doesn't know why. She just knows that Jean did it because, you know, Jean died before Sarah found out that it had happened at all. And that, in fact, is why those memories came back, because with Phoenix having died on the moon, the mental blocks apparently died with her. And Sarah comments on the fact that she was, she's never going to know whether Jean did it because she thought Sarah couldn't handle it or because there were things involved that Jean herself didn't want to have to possibly confront. Yeah. And so that's The Brides of Atuma. In my opinion, one of the better Jean Grey stories ever told. I mean, it's bizarre. Jean and her sister basically get turned into mermaids, and that's weird. But there's such good character work here. This is Chris Claremont at the height of his, of his strength. This was 1981, well within that golden age of just super incredible Claremont stories, and it shows. But everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> yes. Uh, well... Um, but it's, this is only the first of three stories, so we should probably move on to the next one, Winter Carnival, starring exactly who you'd expect based on that title. Freaking Iceman. Okay, so, Jay, I, I love this story. I mean, it's not an important story the way that the Phoenix one was, or even to a degree the way the Nightcrawler one that we'll get to next is, but it's just so enjoyable. Yeah, this is, this is a super, super fun story. It's lighthearted. It's, it's, it's nice. 
it's it's Iceman has a good weekend. And I think part of that nice, good-hearted, enjoyable feel comes directly from the creative team. Well, okay, technically all of it since they made it, but you know what I mean. The writer is Mary Jo Duffy, also known as Joe Duffy, also known as the writer of the Fallen Angels miniseries, another favorite of mine. I love her work so much. I wish she write, wrote things still. I, I'm not sure if she does, actually. I should see what she's up to these days. I mean, like on Wikipedia. I, I don't know her. We haven't met. See if we could get her on the show someday. Maybe, yeah. The art is done by George Perez. Now, if you listen to Titan Up the Defense, the Teen Titans Defenders podcast, and you should, you'll have heard a lot about George Perez's art because he does a bunch of new Teen Titans, and his work is beautiful. He just has such a great sense of storytelling and emotion and body language and actually being able to figure out what's going on in a panel, which not every artist can do. He's wonderful. I think of him as like one of three artists who actually bothers to draw curly hair. He does curly hair really well. It's true. There's a lot of curly hair in this story. And as we mentioned, uh, all throughout these three stories in Bizarre Adventures number 27, the anchors are kind of the stars of the show. And here we have Alfredo Alcala. And there's just this lushness to his inks that work very, very well. So this takes place during Bobby Drake's college years during specifically the, one of his long non-superhero periods after he was a member of the Champions, but before he joined up with the new Defenders. At this point, he's a sophomore in college, and he's visiting a friend at Dartmouth College, which apparently is having its famous Winter Carnival. This year, its theme is superheroes, so there are lots of ice sculptures all around of people he knows. Now, the Winter Carnival at Dartmouth is a real thing. I looked this up. It started in 1911, and it's still going every year. The 2018 theme, or I guess late 2017, early 2018 theme of the Winter Carnival is Snow Wars. May the frost be with you. I kind of feel like they could have done better than that, but I like Star Wars, so I'm okay with it. Yeah, so I have another question. There is, have, have you noticed that there is just like a fuck lot of ice sculpture going on in the Marvel Universe? Yeah, there really are. I mean, and, you know, they do tend to coincide with Iceman stories. No, but Firestar, Firestar, Firestar has, has, has ice sculpture origins. Oh, yeah, she totally does. I mean, that was in an academic setting as well, right? So maybe in the Marvel Universe, schools have, like, degrees they offer in ice sculpting. Maybe they have ice sculpting instead of home ec. Like, that's all you learn how to do is sculpt ice. The rest of it can fuck itself. You can figure it out as you go. But ice sculpting, if you're going to be a homemaker or a provider or whatever, you have got to know how to do that. Look, listeners who grew up in the 47 states or 48 states north of ours is this a thing? Like, do a lot of high school students get into ice sculpture? Yeah, we just ran away from alligators a lot back in South Florida. It was terrifying. Oh, that's not true. We didn't have to run away from them. They, they kept us inside the classrooms when they showed up at the bus loop, which did actually totally happen at our school periodically. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, we can't get on the school buses because there's a freaking alligator that crawls out of the retention pond. And it's Florida, so you're like, oh, well, uh, okay, fine. Glad I brought my magic cards, whatever. I mean, it was a pretty small alligator. It's usually a pretty small alligator. Although um, an actual, like a large alligator did actually kill a guy my mom knew. Yeah, yeah, I remember you telling me about that. That's, that's pretty messed up. Yeah, it was, I mean, there were, there were complicated extenuating circumstances, which just makes it sound way more exciting than it, it actually is. And he, he wasn't like a close friend of the family or anything. But um, I'm sorry, this is awful. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like such a ghoul. Um laughing at this but it's it's also just so damn weird like florida this is this is like the kind of thing that you you sort of just sort of learn to take as normal in florida it's a strange land with strange customs it's true it is it is an odd and and fairly savage place it's kind of the australia of north america well, speaking of not Australia, but yes, North America, back at Dartmouth, Iceman is checking out all of the ice sculptures of these various superheroes, and he's a little bummed that Angel is the only X-Man that's represented there, and so Bobby makes a statue of himself, because Bobby Drake is definitely a goofball and a little full of himself, and I totally buy this. I'm really stunned that no one bothered to make a sculpture of Iceman, because it seems like kind of a gimme. Maybe they thought it was two on the nose? I don't know. But Bobby soon meets up with his friends who go to Dartmouth and gets in a big snowball fight. And so we see that he's got a friend named Francis. That's his main buddy that he's here to visit. There's also a glasses, long-haired mustache guy named Bubba, who I love. Bubba's got like two lines, but he's just so charming every time he's drawn by George Perez. And I want to hang out with him, even though I guess this story came out a long time ago, so he's probably pretty old, but I'm sure we'd still have a lot in common, like having long hair and being wonderful people. 
I really like Bubba. I feel like Bubba is, is one of those characters who clearly has a life well beyond his appearance and probably, in fact, ends up working or at least as artist in residency at the Heartbreak Hotel for, for, for at least a little while. Well, and actually, I have a theory about that. So, uh, Jay, uh, if you could please read Bubba's line in this scene. Hey, all right, snowball fight. Now, not many people know that Hey All Right's Snowball Fight is the opening line to Bubba's epic prog rock album that came out in 1978, which is about the winter fairy court's descent into capitalistic oppression. It's very complicated, both musically and thematically. Unfortunately, it was not commercially viable, so now he's back in school trying to get a degree in, like, accounting or something. Poor Bubba, you tried so hard, but someday your work will be recognized. This I swear. He's, he's only got a few, like, really hardcore fans. Um, Harvey and Janet definitely have an original pressing of the, the LP. Oh, no, I think Peter Corbeau, like, wrote one of his 16 theses on this album. I think Peter Corbeau probably has a blurb on the cover. Can you imagine getting a Peter Corbeau blurb on a cover? Like, we would have the most successful podcast in the world. Or at least the most prestigious. I'm not sure if it would necessarily confer commercial success so much as just... You know, status and honor and all of that stuff. Oh, maybe. Well, maybe someday. We'll keep trying. Anyway, Iceman is talking to his buddy Francis about Iceman's ex, who he says was, you know, too fickle. So they split up when suddenly there's a scream. Yes, armed robbers are stealing components of the campus's prized computer system. So I looked this up because what they're stealing is a small, maybe like, I don't know, Xbox-sized rectangle. So this is the early 80s, 1983, I think, was this was when this story came out. Not 81, I think we got it wrong earlier. So it could be an Apple Profile, which was a 5 megabyte external hard drive designed to work with the Apple III and released for $34.99. That is $3,499 for this 5 meg rectangle. I mean, later on we actually find it was some of Hank Pym's tech that the school was testing, but I'm just saying I did my research as to what a box like that in 1983 at an academic computer lab lab could have been, and I am leaving that shit in. You're ignoring an obvious option, which is that Hank Pym helped develop the Apple profile, in at least in the 616. Maybe. I mean, I guess back in the early 80s, 3500 bucks for a 5 megabyte hard drive wouldn't have been so laughable, and maybe Hank Pym was part of it. Although it was kind of bulky, like he's got Pym particles, couldn't he have shrunk it, you know, to make it more convenient? To be fair, Hank Pym was involved in a lot of fairly laughable and suspicious activities. Yeah, and also some, some real dick moves. Hank Pym, I'm, I'm not so sure about you. Hank Pym is a man with terrible judgment. Except in Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, where Hank Pym is awesome. He's also pretty delightful in Marvel Adventures, if I recall correctly. Like, the ants are basically his roommates. That's, that's great. Uh, are they like therapy animals? I know some colleges let you have those. No, no, no animal is sufficiently therapeutic for Hank Pym. It's probably true. Well, anyway, speaking of delightful people, so these robbers, like, they're wearing ski masks, as you would expect from robbers, but it's winter, so they're seasonally appropriate. They have, like, little snowflakey designs. They're very festive robbers, and I'm just saying, if you're going to do something, do it stylishly. Do it with heart. Aren't ski masks fundamentally seasonally appropriate for winter? Yeah, but usually when you see robbers with them, they're just, like, black ski masks. They don't have winter patterns on them, necessarily, or pom-poms. I don't know if any of these have pom-poms. I don't remember. I assume they do. Well, the festive bandits are stymied when Bobby goes into ice mode, shattering all of his clothes off, which means you get to take a drink. I'm not sure. Should it, should it be like a hot winter drink or should it be maybe a frozen or something frozen? I say a hot toddy, but I also just like hot toddies, so I'm biased. All right. Well, you know, you make your own choices. And he he takes out the 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 whole group of festive bandits and everyone's super, super grateful and excited. And hey, they've even got a real superhero at their superhero winter carnival. I think they're also excited because the bandits only used their laser stun blasters, and so they didn't actually kill any of the students that they shot. These bandits, they're very considerate in, in addition to being festive. I'm a big fan of them. Like, I think they can be reformed. I think we should hang out with them. I think we can show them what the world can be. They're going to turn aside from their life of crime, of stealing Apple profiles from the early 80s, and do nice things. Like, I don't know, work at animal shelters. Also, their plan is extremely leveraged, which I deeply, deeply appreciate. But we're going to get to that shortly. 
and the narration for this celebration is just so charming and kind of retro Silver age in a way that's wonderful and happy winterish. It's like that concept of Huga Higa? How do you pronounce it? Anyway, it's like that. Throughout the day, the festivities go on, with the unique guest of honor contributing to the fun in his own inimitable fashion. Moisture there is in abundance, and a ready supply of ice at hand, and the Iceman uses it all. He invents games and rides for the students, adds new wrinkles to the ones they've already set up, and enjoys himself thoroughly. Regardless of the game or whose rules they play by, he wins time and time again. He is best at everything. Finally, to be fair, he drops out and begins to judge others. Okay, look, there's no way I'm going to believe that he was not already judging them. But it's so charming, and the art, Perez's art, is just so much fun here. Like, it's just so goofy and old school. Bobby's building ice luges and ice javelins and doing ice hoop jumping and ice pole vaulting. Everyone is very, very impressed. And this is almost like a day built for Bobby Drake. Everyone is so happy about him playing dumb games with ice that he can make from his body. Like, this is exactly what Iceman wants out of life right now. See, it sounds kind of creepy when you put it that way. I mean, no, the from his body part? Well, it is charming. Because the fact is, Bobby's the youngest X-Man, and yes, he's a sophomore in college at this point, but he's always been very young at heart and very playful, and like, in a really earnest, I'm actually enjoying myself kind of way. And that's what I like about Winter Carnival. It gets that aspect of Bobby. Bobby is a fun, joyful dude, and it comes through. Yeah, no, it's it's fun and it's cute. I actually thought, I expected when I was reading through this that it was gonna, this story was going to involve Bobby being sad that everyone had been so excited to have Iceman there that no one had noticed Bobby Drake was gone, but it did not. It's, it's just frolicky and lighthearted. Yup. So later in the dining hall, a police officer shows up to debrief everyone after the robbery earlier in the day. And I love Bobby's friend's Francis's response here. It's so just like generically college movie. Are we under arrest? If the guys in Sigma Nu are complaining about that cow we put in the living room, I don't know anything about it. College, everybody. But it's not just a simple story of thwarting robberies with ambiguous, potentially Apple-made equipment as the target and then having fun ice capades. It turns out there's intrigue. The first robbery? That was a fake. The robbers, in fact, snuck a box of additional robber into the area. Then the police brought it back inside, thinking it was part of the stolen goods. That robber now gets out of his box and lets everybody in that night. See, that's the part that's totally a leverage, uh, a leverage scam. I fully believe that. We find that um, the math professor, Professor Thatcher, was and is in on the whole thing. He's got a villainous Van Dyke beard style, so, you know, I'll buy that. Is villainous Van Dyke uh, Dick's lesser-known brother? Yeah, and a real jerk, too. So, Professor Thatcher and his evil facial hair and these clever leveragey robbers head down Fraternity Row, passing by all these ice statues of various superheroes. And Thatcher is, is real smug about this state of affairs. Look at them all, just figures in ice, watching us. Impotent, helpless to stop us. Mere figurines. Do you think he, like, gloats at every inanimate object he sees. Yeah, like they said he was a math professor, but I think he might be a gloating professor, or at least a drama professor. But the way this is drawn by Perez is great. There's this long series of tall, narrow panels, each one of which Thatcher is in as he walks past each ice statue. So he passes Vision, The Thing, Iceman, Iron Man, Ms. Marvel, Namor, Angel, Iceman, Scarlet Witch, Ghost Rider. Wait a minute. You said one of those names twice. Two Iceman? Could that possibly be story relevant? In fact, it is, because one of those Icemen is not impotent and helpless to stop Thatcher and the robbers and starts doing awesome icy combat-y stuff. Even though Professor Thatcher uses his blaster cane, P.S., he has a blaster cane, uh, to escape. Man, all our math professor had was a really old Sheltie. Pretty great Sheltie. Yeah, she was good. Iceman chases Professor Thatcher into the drunken affable arms of the student body and shoots the soon-to-explode cane into the sky on a column of ice, because not only is it a blaster cane, it's also a bomb cane that Thatcher uses as a threat. And Perez has a good job of showing Iceman's powers. Like, the thing with Iceman's powers is they, have, they inherently have motion to them. He has ice that changes shape and grows and shrinks and whatever as Iceman uses it. And so just seeing this cane rise into the air on this improbably teetering ice column coming out of Iceman's hands, it's pretty sweet looking. It really is. 
So Thatcher's arrested and everyone once again cheers Iceman, who concludes that he loves working solo and he loves being in the spotlight. And now he's going to stop running away from being a hero, except he totally doesn't. He just goes back to college. Right, because it's still going to be a number of years before that bizarre Oblivion miniseries that we mentioned, you know, the one where he fights Oblivion, and he's just on teams other than that. So maybe this was supposed to set up a solo Iceman series or more solo Iceman stories. I don't know. It didn't, but it's still very charming, and Iceman will get an excellent solo series in 2017, which, to be fair, is a long time after the early 80s. And got canceled. But it was so good before it did. So good. It really was. So Winter Carnival is sort of a throwaway, fluffy story, and I'm fine with that. It's a fun character piece, and it's just a fun story, and features some phenomenal freaking art. So I highly, highly recommend it. Now, as for why it was the backup story to Uncanny X-Men number 600, I'm still not entirely sure. I mean, Brian Bendis definitely focused on Iceman a lot as far as Iceman coming out. Yeah, something that we see really commonly in issues that collect older stuff to pad them out is that they'll generally be older stories that focus on a character who's central to the main narrative. I mean, I think I think that's really the entire reason it was in there. Yeah, and it works well. I mean, it was a bit of a, a, a tonal shift from Bendis' last issue, but hey, if it's a chance for more people to read a really fun story, I'm down with that. I would love to see more stories like this. What it reminds me of, honestly, more than anything else, is the X-Men first class backup stories, the, one that's, the ones that um, were Paul Tobin and Colleen Coover and they were just, they were these fun, lighthearted little adventures in the back of what was already a fairly fun book comparatively, you know, tonally. But they were just, they were just these wonderful effervescent little bursts of, of bright and cute and lovely. And Iceman is a character who is so well suited to that form. I completely agree. And another character who is is Nightcrawler. So let's talk about the third story in this book, Show Me the Way to Go Home. All right, now this one is written by Bob Layton and Mary Jo Duffy, and it is penciled by the dude you would absolutely hire in this year to draw a fun, lighthearted Nightcrawler story, and that, of course, is Dave Cockrum. And it's inked by Ricardo Villamonte. Now, we open with Wolverine grousing because they are once again watching Nightcrawler's favorite movie, and Wolverine doesn't understand why you'd want to watch a movie more than once, to which I say that Wolverine can go to hell. You do repeat your favorite movies a number of times. Yes. Yes, I do. And so does Nightcrawler, because he likes being able to speak along with the dialogue. Also, canonically, now you know in context of this story, Nightcrawler's favorite movie is, or at least in 1983 was, the 1940 flick The Mask of Zorro. It's probably fair to assume that he likes this movie because of the sword fights, not because of its relevance to Batman's origins. Colossus, on the other hand, likes this movie because Zorro is a defender of the proletariat. Piotr Rasputin, you are so great. I mm, I would say never change, but that would mean he would never grow that sweet beard he had in Extraordinary X-Men, so that would be unfortunate. Now, what I also love is that Kurt, to watch this movie, is in his finest swashbuckler garb, like the lace-up shirt and the bracers and all of that. And if he's seen these, this movie this many times, I only have to assume he dresses this way every single time he watches it. I really like that idea. I Well, he's, he's got the image inducer, so he may not actually be wearing this clothing. But I do, I love the idea that he does that. And I also love the fact that he basically uses his image inducer to cosplay. I mean, I would. Oh, likewise. As someone who is currently frantically <laughs> hand sewing patches onto a vest for Emerald City Comic Con, which hopefully you will all have seen because it'll have been done and out by the time this episode comes out. God, I hope. I have so much left to do. An image inducer would be nice. Ah, oh, you totally got this. I totally got this. What I really hope is that I managed to get, get my mom's uh, cable costume done in time. Oh, I can't wait to see that. I'm, again, this is, this is still, we're still a week, week and a half out from Emerald City as we record this, but I am, I'm so, ex I'm still so excited about getting to dress my mother up as Cable. Like, I mean, you, you know what my mother, you, you, you've met my mother. Like, you know, this is, this is destiny. This is meant to be. I mean, I, I've seen the future. It was. Yeah, no, if I, if I had to choose among everyone I know, most likely to end up leading a revolution in a dystopian future and also possibly becoming an eco-terrorist, which is something I genuinely worry about occasionally with regards to her, it would absolutely be my mom. Plus, she's already got the hair on the glower. Exactly. She's so great. Anyway, the wonderful viewing of, th of the Zorro movie is interrupted by a rather unprecedented occurrence. Cerebro has detected, well, that part's precedented, but here's the part that's not. 
Cerebro has detected A, half a mutant, and B, to Kurt's shock and horror, in Poughkeepsie. Huh. And apparently this half a mutant is half of the Vanisher, who's disappearing into a blob of Kirby dots as he is bisected through his middle from crown to crotch. How has this come to be? Well, fortunately for us, we've got some captions to explain. Months ago, after his defeat at the hands of the now-disbanded Champions team, the Vanisher tried to escape by his own style of teleportation. The heroine Darkstar stopped him literally halfway using her mysterious power, the Dark Force. At long last, miles away, the rest of the Vanisher has reappeared. And no sooner does Nightcrawler touch this half of the Vanisher than the two of them both disappear and are warped between realities, briefly accompanied by a montage of alternate versions of themselves. My favorite one is the one where Nightcrawler is a demonic duck and the Vanisher is a rat. They're actually really cute, and the duck reminds me a lot of Count Docula. Do you remember that show? I never saw it, but I'm, I'm aware of its, its existence. Had a really catchy theme song. And listeners, if you've seen it, now it's in your head, too. In the heart of Transylvania, in the vampire hall of fame, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether I should be sad that I haven't seen it because it's apparently excellent or grateful that I don't know the theme song, which is therefore not now stuck in my head. Um, now, Nightcrawler, for his part, lands alone. He is, he is on a super cool space world. It's a very fantastic planet looking, and it's, it's full of pterodactyls and odd rock features and scantily clad ladies who immediately offer to make him their god in imp implicit exchange for um, vaguely alluded to sexual favors. And, and Nightcrawler is, is into this idea but unfortunately, he tells the ladies he's got places to be, and he tries to teleport off, but he can't. His bamfs only poot. Yep, there's a great big poot sound effect and some dialogue around it that's pretty glorious. But what I like most about this scene, and really most about this story, is how much fun Dave Cockrum is having drawing this world. We don't get to see a whole lot of the world, but we do get to see a lot of these women. Apparently, this is a world populated entirely by women, and they're all, they all have these sort of space fantasy, skimpy, tight outfits with elaborate headdresses and swords and stuff like that. And their deal is kind of an informed consent version of a Tumas thing, which is that whenever, you know, a, a dude shows up, they make him their god and invite him in and continue to, to propagate the species. Right. And I gotta say, if you're gonna do that, you could do a hell of a lot worse than Kurt Wagner. Like, a hell of a lot worse. But Cockrum just draws them as so... I don't know, there's like this knowing, mischievous look in their eyes. Like, they're just so happy about this idea. Like, any potential creepiness to these circumstances are completely erased by the fact that Dave Cockrum shows everybody just enthusiastically consenting in every visual possible way. Like, I'm so excited about the sex the Nightcrawler and these ladies are probably going to have. Yeah, alas, they're not going to have a chance because Nightcrawler is going to be concerned about getting home. The Vanisher may fare slightly better. He comes to elsewhere in a very similar scenario, but he, unlike Nightcrawler, decides that this is awesome. Screw home. He's just going to stay here and be a god. And at this point, he's, he's dressed, I think, entirely in the Dark Force. He loses his clothing pretty early on. Yeah, he's just got this sort of black bodysuit composed of Darkstar's powers, or at least the stuff that Darkstar channels. It's sort of merged with him in this weird teleportation accident. Right. Now... Nightcrawler is, is concerned by the high rate of god turnover. He's wondering where the other gods went and also how he himself can get home. And so, so the, um, his, his lady friends take him to see the oracle Sev. Um, you might remember Sev if you remember our coverage of the Nightcrawler miniseries because a lot of the original concepts from that first show up in this story. Most importantly, the place to which Sev directs Nightcrawler. That's the well at the center of time. Now, Sev herself is a sassy old lady in a TV set. Which is growing out of this cave inside a tree with the word Oracle and a giant sound effect-like font over the entrance to it. And her design is wonderful. Like, if you've read any Dave Cockrum-drawn comics, you know his style. 
It's a little bit cartoony. His proportions are uniquely Dave Cockrum-ish. They just look a little different than the way other artists draw proportions. It's very enthusiastic, very fantastical. And this lady looks way more cartoony. She actually reminds me a great deal of a drawing you might see done by Phil Folio, who's uh, one of the artists of Girl Genius and did a bunch of Magic the Gathering cards. She has that type of proportions and that type of face. And so it's immensely charming in a comic whose art is already immensely charming. Oh, yeah. No, I can I can kind of see the Foglio, yeah. Absolutely. Sev, again, Sev sends Nightcrawler to the well at the center of time. But the deal is he has to leave with everything he arrived with and nothing else or something bad will happen. And unfortunately, what that means is that if Nightcrawler wants to get home, he needs the Vanisher. The Vanisher who loves this new life. I mean, I guess, understandably. And Vanisher is is reluctant to give up godhood in favor of his his generally fairly iffy existence on Earth. Nightcrawler is is able to basically force him along. Vanisher tries to resist by way of the dark force, which she can still manipulate, but Nightcrawler basically hides in it like a shadow and is able to pull some of it away from the Vanisher himself. Two things. Thing one, the sound effect of the Vanisher throwing dark force at Nightcrawler and seemingly obliterating him is gleeple, which may be my new favorite sound effect. And Oh, that's very technet. It kind of is, isn't it? And two, everybody forgets Nightcrawler's shadow powers. He can literally disappear into and out of shadows, and that's what he does here. It's kind of like coming out of one of those portable holes in the Yellow Submarine movie from the Sea of Holes. You remember those? Oh, the Dark Force very, very much acts like the, the hole that ends up in, in George Harrison's pocket. Right. But I kind of feel like it's a missed opportunity that Nightcrawler and Darkstar, to the best of my knowledge, never teamed up. They could do sweet team-up moves, but then she died. I think she got better, though. I don't know. It's hard to keep track. Anyway, a big scary monster shows up, tries to chase Nightcrawler and Vanisher, and leaves them no escape but to dive into the well at the center of the time, which they do. They emerge where they disappeared, unharmed, um, save for Vanisher's clothing, which is completely gone. And they all live happily ever after. What a delightful, ridiculous story. Yeah, this is just fun. It's it's a confection. It's I mean, like like the Iceman story. This is a story that's just sort of a delight to read. Unlike the Iceman story, this is going to heavily inform the Nightcrawler limited series, um, which is also a confectionary delight, so... And those are our three stories. We have an amazing Jean Grey character piece that also happens to involve her and her sister getting turned into mermaids. We have just a fun, very lo-fi, not very fantastical Iceman story. And we have this goofy nonsense so beautifully drawn by Dave Cockrum. We also have Joe Duffy writing the second and third story. And she's just fun. I, I said this before, but I really love Joe Duffy's work. I wish he did more stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know who else we love? We love you, listeners, and you have questions. Grant asks via email, Hey, Jay and Miles, do you think that the Slayer, Buffy Summers, could be a part of the Summers family? Her life is certainly tragic enough to qualify. Okay, look, Grant, at this point, I have come to the conclusion that if there's any possibility that someone could be a Summers, yeah, X-Men Summers, it's probably safe to assume that somewhere in the multiverse they absolutely are. So I was thinking about this, about how you could work Buffy the Vampire Slayer into X-Men. I'm sure there's a lot of the internet that has their own ideas, but... I'm sure Joss Whedon has spent, like, months thinking about this specific thing, too. Eh, That's probably true. But here's my take. So, in Earth-616, according to my fanon, Slayers are handled like keys. You know, keys from Season 5 and onward of Buffy, in that they can, spoiler for a decades-old show be retroactively inserted into continuity. So that's why we never saw Buffy, the third summer sibling, in those various omniscient narrator flashbacks of Alex and Scott's childhood. Don't you mean fourth? Ah, that's true, there was Vulcan. But that was complicated in different ways, and also I just don't like talking about Vulcan. Anyway, point being, so Buffy was the third summer sibling who escaped Christopher's exploding plane on that one parachute, and she was then adopted by Joyce and Joyce's asshole husband, just like Alex was adopted by that random couple that nobody ever thinks about. Except Buffy was therefore adopted by people who also coincidentally had the last name Summers. 
Uh, yes, that was just the Marvel Universe being the Marvel Universe. Just go with it. But then Mr. Sinister used something-something-science-something to keep Buffy mutually secret from the rest of her family for very complicated, almost unfathomable reasons that probably had a lot to do with Lord Apocalypse. Corsair actually does remember Buffy, but he doesn't talk about her because it makes him sad and he's not always good at disclosing things to his children. Scott and Alex forgot due to Sinister's manipulation and also due to falling very hard from a great height. So, um, anytime now, the Slayer and Havoc and Cyclops will all get to hang out. Um, or at least young Cyclops, because old Cyclops is dead. And there you go. I am 100% sure that there are is all there are already multiple like fan fiction universes based entirely around this premise. Anyway, what else do we have? So it's probably out there. Um, all right, so we've got a question that's I think apropos of some of the stuff we talked about today. James asks also via email, if you could have one character become one with a cosmic force, who would it be, and what cosmic force would inhabit their body? That is a really good question. I mean, the Marvel Universe is full of cosmic forces, uh, as we learned when we looked them up to answer this question. I personally think it's a shame that the Farron slash Phoenix Bond that we'll be getting to shortly in Excalibur has been forgotten about, as has Farron. Uh, but I still have an answer. You know, I'm kind of okay with Farron being forgotten about. He's an asshole. I kind of liked his character design. That was a sweet green robe. But my personal favorite cosmic entity in the Marvel Universe is the Queen of Nevers, which is from Dan Slott and Mike Allred's recent run of Silver Surfer, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend. It's sort of like the Marvel Universe meets Doctor Who in a way. Anyway, the Queen of Nevers is the embodiment of all possibility. She created a realm called the Land of Couldn't Be, Shouldn't Be, which kind of gets across the feel of her. But I was trying to figure out, like, who could embody her. We were talking about that. And Jay, you had a couple of awesome suggestions. I do, and I actually thought of another one while we were recording. So my, my first suggestion, and I think the one that would probably be coolest, would be a combination of Legion and Blindfold. Oh, very Cy Spurrier era right there. Yeah, exactly. Building on that. Um, yeah, Legion at the height of his reality warping um, and, and narratively driven powers. In a very different direction, I think Wolfsbane would be a really, really interesting one for this. And I realized after thinking about that Verity from, um, from the Loki Agent of Asgard stuff. Oh, Verity Willis. Yeah. Verity Willis would be phenomenal as a host for the Queen of Nevers. Did you know that she is the, I think, daughter, if not granddaughter, of the uh, Eric Willis who opened the Casket of Ancient Winters back in Simonson's run? I did. That's so cool. That is, that is very cool. Anyway, did you have a cosmic force that uh, you had ideas for? I'd like to see more exploration of Cable's relationship to the Phoenix Force and him as a possible Phoenix host. I think that would be a really, really interesting direction to, to play more and explore more than, than already has been. I'd also like to see Artie and Leech host Cosmic Forces, I, or, or co-host a Cosmic Force, probably more likely, because they, they do everything together. I, I feel like if, if there's any character who would, who would handle those powers ethically and, and well and adorably, it would be those two. I think I have an idea. Okay, yeah, because I, I wasn't sure which Cosmic Force to give them, because they really don't seem like Phoenix types. Okay, check this shit. Ego, the living planet. Now, if you've seen the Guardians of the, of the Galaxy second movie, you're just picturing Kurt Russell, look up pictures of him. I mean, Artie and Leech's heads are already very lumpy and already one color each, and this would also give them an opportunity to grow planet-sized mustaches. Can you imagine that? Giant Artie and Leech heads floating in space with awesome facial hair? How good would that be? I'm just imagining Artie and Leech with, like, huge mustaches right now, but otherwise exactly themselves, and it might be the cutest thing I've ever pictured. Okay, uh, James, this question was worth it for a number of reasons, but I think the biggest reason is that now we're all thinking of that. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement and thanks on the show from a range of fictional concepts and characters. So let's turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator in this episode that, for the first time in a long time, actually has some Claremont. It was to be a simple day of sun and sailing, Heather Nygaard. A welcome break from the slings and arrows of the fast-paced and perilous life you had come to expect. But Bronwyn Ember had other ideas, and however smooth the seas before you, Flashback after flashback lurked on the horizon, a hurricane of memories nested like layers of slightly sinister Matryoshka dolls. And um, on a brighter note, I, I believe we have in the wings Sexy Nightcrawler. 
from swashbuckler outfits in Zorro to Poughkeepsie in The Vanisher, Luck seemed to elude us, but has quickly turned around. Luke thickens. Have you ever seen fantastically clad beauties such as these? So welcoming and so affectionate. And, my God, Jeremy Worrell, they wish us to be their gods? My friends, we must of course be careful not to take advantage, but our new friends seem ready, willing, and most enthusiastic to make our acquaintance. Westchester calls, eventually, but perhaps we could tarry for a while. It would be rude to disappoint our hosts on any level. And with that, Jay and Miles explain The X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and explainthexmen.com. Leave us a rating and a review. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every single episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're back to pecs and pouches as X-Force suffers its first casualty.